Welcome to Lantondokya Podcast, and your hosts are Noming and Gesser. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a non-profit called Just Neighbors that is dedicated to serving and supporting the immigrant community of Virginia. We had a pleasure speaking with Executive Director Erin McKenney. And here's today's episode. Thank you for taking the time and being with us today. My pleasure. Um, could you please start with, uh, um, with introducing yourself and the, the work that Just Neighbors does? Gladly. Um, my name is Erin McKenney. I'm the executive director at a small nonprofit called Just Neighbors. We are an immigration legal services provider, and we do humanitarian-based immigration work um, with individuals who are below 200% of poverty level. So um, for most of our clients, they are unable to afford legal assistance in obtaining their documentation or even assessing if they're eligible for documentation. And um, so we're able to provide high quality legal services um, for a very minimal of a, a minimum fee of $100, uh, which we waive half of the time. Um, those are the only fees they pay to us and um, they may have fees that they have to pay to the government for their filing, but um, we're able then to, we, we don't let money payment for our legal services be an impediment to their ability to seek their immigration status. Um, so that's our primary mission is direct humanitarian based legal services. Sounds great. Yeah. Uh, so it would be interesting for our listeners to know how you started in this field? Um, well, I've been with Just Neighbors almost four years. Um, I had a 20-year career with Verizon, um, and uh, I took an early out there and um, was doing a lot of mission work with my church and um, ended up working at a smaller nonprofit that was um, a day shelter where we were feeding uh, the hungry and the homeless a couple days a week. And really kind of got to know a lot of the immigrant population who were who were hungry because they couldn't get good jobs or get jobs at all and um, began to kind of understand uh, what it meant to be undocumented and the complexity and, and the cost of trying to to obtain their status if they had a pathway. Um, I was there for about seven years and was just was interested in getting into something more justice oriented, right? The, the feeding of people is extraordinarily important, but five hours later, they're hungry again. And if you can't do something to change the condition, they're always going to be hungry again in another few hours. So I was looking after, after getting to know so many of the immigrants in that area, um, I was really looking to do something more justice oriented. And um, long story short, just neighbors, um, the, she was also the founder at the time with my church and um, they uh, they were moving um, she ended up her husband took a job in Atlanta and the opening happened and um, it just felt like it was a calling for me to to pursue the position and um, it was just a uh, I, I really felt like a calling it was like a right uh, I was supposed to be there um, kind of all the things that I would have put in front of myself as roadblocks in terms of the job requirements weren't there. 
and um, so it uh, it's it's been a very interesting four years. Uh, I started about four months before the election, and the immigration world changed dramatically. Wow. Um, <laughs> Your timing was perfect, huh? You yeah, needed to be right. here. I got a few months got a few months in to learn the organization and learn immigration, and we have been on a high speed treadmill ever since. So, um, yeah, that's that's my story. That's your story. I know there are other um, legal organizations that provide services for immigrants or uh, victims of domestic violence or any other crime, but how does Just Neighbors differ from other organizations? And I was reading the website and Just Neighbors highlighted that that Just Neighbors offers compassionate immigration legal service. I want to hear about what is how you define that work and how Just Neighbors work differ. Well, our our approach of not having having to pay legal fees is is one of the areas. Almost every nonprofit, what well, basically every nonprofit, usually has a sliding scale for fees. So based on your income, you may pay less or more depending on your income and depending on what what work the attorneys are doing. For us, like I said, we have the flat $100 consultation fee. Once you pay that, you don't pay anything else. And again, we waive that most of the time. So it's never a barrier to service. And and for many of the other nonprofits refer the poorest of the poor to us because they can't even afford the sliding scale. So that's, that's one aspect of the compassion. Um, secondly, because we do all humanitarian based, um, we are well versed in dealing with Virtually all of our clients are are victims of some form of trauma. Um, they're domestic violence survivors, they're asylum seekers, they're refugees, they're victims of crime, natural disaster, um, and and so we have um, our staff is well trained in dealing with with trauma victims and are very sensitive in working through because. Unfortunately, in order to, to file many of their claims, which are based on the trauma that they've experienced, they have to relive those. And um, we work very hard to be sensitive and, and patient with them as they have to reconstruct their stories. And um, we use a lot of volunteers and, and, you know, they offer a lot of comfort in that as well. And, and so I think that's a big part of our compassion. We're also, there's, there's no judgment. Um, there's, you know, if you're undocumented, we're not judging you for making a choice to come. Um, we're trying to figure out if, if you have a pathway to get documentation. I can't create one for you, but if there is one, we can help you find it. Um, if, if there isn't one, we're going to tell you what your rights are and, and what you can do to best protect yourself while you're here. Um, so I think it's how we treat our clients um, and, and whether it's our, our paid staff or our volunteer attorneys or our volunteers, everybody has a heart for this work. We are a faith-based organization, but that drives little of our, our policy. But as, as we describe it, we're a law firm with a ministry. And I think for everybody who, who works and helps out at Just Neighbors, it's a calling for people to really help um, whoever it is we're working with from a client standpoint. 
Yeah. So just to make clear that even though Just Neighbors is faith-based organization for the clients to receive the services, it's open to public. It Absolutely. doesn't matter which religion they have, or maybe they could be atheist or that, that anything. Religion, the only time religion ever comes up is if it's a form of, if they have been persecuted for their religion. Um, okay. we have, we have no requirements, no expectations. We don't proselytize, you know, there's, there's nothing. Um, that's, that's not what our mission is. Um, so basically, um, you know, we do have clients that have been persecuted for the religion. And so that may be a, a path to help in their pathway to getting documentation. Um, but you know, some people have a criminal background. Some people have had, uh, we work with a lot of homeless individuals and they have drug addictions and things like that. And only to the extent that it impacts their ability to file their cases, is that ever an issue? And it's not our judging their issue. It's just being realistic about whether they can actually, they'll, they'll receive the immigration benefit because uh, it may obstruct <laughs> their ability to do that by the law. So um, again, I think that's part of our compassion is that there's no, no judgment, no assumptions about uh, anything um, with our clients. Uh -huh. I, I have a question, just a follow-up question. I was reading the mission on the website, and uh, I might have missed it, but when it says um, that you provide legal services to low-income immigrants and refugees, mm -hmm. um, how is would you define low-income? Is yep. there? Yeah. Yeah, there is a definition. It's below 200% of the federal poverty guidelines. So for a family of four, I think the new guidelines, that's about $52,000 of annual income a year. Okay. And so part of our screening is to get an assessment of, of an individual's, or it's really the family, the household income um, as one of the screening mechanisms. But I will tell you, 80% of our clients are below 100% of the poverty level. Okay. So, for example, um, I would assume a lot of the definition of undocumented would be that they don't, they don't, uh, usually they're not authorized to work, right? If they're undocumented, they are not authorized to work. Many okay. of them do work. Many of them actually pay taxes. Okay. Um, but they're not authorized to work. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yes, sir. I just want to follow up on your questions. Like when you ask that many of them are undocumented, are you asking for like just like undocumented immigrants? Or are you kind of like considering about those people who came into the country who has some sort of uh, legal status, but that status doesn't allow them to work, but those people would like to work and probably would like to find the legal pathway to get the permanent residence or some other legal options yeah. to work and permanently live in this country. Would that so, people so, fall under your target population? Yeah, it, it really depends on how they came. So if somebody came on an employment visa mm -hmm. um, and maybe is no longer working under that visa, um, if they are afraid to return to their country, because they're going to be persecuted or something, then we might take that case as the humanitarian case. We don't do the employment-based immigration. Mm -hmm. Corporations get visas for workers. Um, oftentimes, um, it, you know, 
if somebody uh, student, if you come on a student visa and you're not allowed to work, there's nothing we can really do about that unless there's something else that's happened to you that gives you a pathway so that if you've been a victim of a violent crime or something like that and you want to apply for a U visa, then we would take that kind of case. But um, it's, you know, what happens a lot of times, and quite frankly, a lot of people who are undocumented actually more come into the country legally and overstay, mm -hmm. violate a visa. So in the last seven or eight years, despite the numbers crossing the southern border without inspection, the larger number of undocumented people are coming in on, on visas and overstaying. And so the yeah. minute they overstay their visa, they become undocumented. Yeah. Most of them do not have any pathway, just like somebody who's crossing the border without inspection. The difference is because they entered legally, if they do have a pathway, it's less likely to impose some other kind of bar. So if you entered with inspection and something else crops up that gives you a different pathway to stay, um, you know, you do, they do background checks to make sure you haven't committed a crime or they look at how you entered and so forth. So if you came in legally, that's better. Mm -hmm. Even if you overstayed your visa, that's better than if you cross the border without inspection. So if you came on a student visa and you married a U.S. citizen, that person can petition for you to get a green card. The American citizen could petition for you to get a green card. Mm -hmm. If you entered illegally, you might have to go back to your country mm -hmm. to petition for that. And depending on how long you've been here, you might have to stay in that country 10 years before you'd be allowed to come back in. If you entered legally, that might not apply. Yeah. So this is the complexity of immigration law um, and the nuances. And, and I'm not an attorney, but what all of our attorneys will tell you is the answer to every immigration question is it depends. Because yeah. everybody's individual situation is unique. And, and so, you know, that those are just some of the layers of complexity that we deal with. Yeah, so how does clients get in contact with Just Neighbors? Will they just call in to your um, phone number or would they get referred through some other programs? It's, you know, it, people ask us all the time about how, how clients find us. And, and honestly, we don't advertise to clients. Uh, we, we have mm -hmm. more than we can handle. Um, clients come to us by word of mouth within an immigrant community. Um, yeah. All of the social services, um, the police, uh, you know, law enforcement, domestic violence shelters, um, other immigration organizations, faith communities, um, all know us. And, and so um, we will often, teachers, you know, school systems. So there's a huge um, network, I guess, in the immigrant community um, of who to go to for help. And, and we also get referrals from the other nonprofits because none of us have the capacity to serve everybody who needs help. We, we serve 25 to 30% of the people who call us because that's all the capacity that we have. And most of the nonprofits are in the same situation. So sometimes folks get into that loop of just trying to find somebody who has an appointment available. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we get referrals from, you know, people who have volunteered at Just Neighbors and know somebody, or we get a lot through social services, um, the homeless shelters, 
um, the Uyghur community, I, I think we get every Uyghur <laughs> that wow. needs help, uh, because we helped a couple and now it's like Uyghurs know to come to us. Um, so it's, it's interesting. You get some of these little, very, you know, they're relatively small and unknown groups. I had never heard of the Uyghur mm-hmm. until I started working at um, Just Neighbors. But um, so the community word of mouth is probably the biggest way that happens. Yeah. Let's say the client were able to get referred into and what would be the next steps? Would you be able to walk us through the steps of sure how just neighbors takes the yeah so the first thing the first thing we do is a preliminary screening and it's about a 10 minute interview we we prefer to do it over the phone but people do show up at our front door sometimes so we can do it in person but it's a 10 minute interview that asks some basic information um about how you know some detail a little bit of detail about how you came to the country have you had any interaction with law enforcement Mm -hmm. have you pursued um any immigration with another attorney your income levels um and then and if you you know what is it you're looking to do so that's our preliminary screening so that comes in um our attorney will our senior attorney reviews that that um, cue every day, um, and will make an assessment. Do they meet our income levels? So, if it's an individual who makes a hundred thousand dollars for a household of one, we're going to refer them out to other nonprofits or to private attorneys. Um, if they're in our income level, then it's a question of what's what kind of work are they looking for? Because as a law firm, immigrants don't always understand that we do specifically immigration law. So they may call us looking for um, a, a, a divorce attorney or an employment issue, or you know, they just don't know where else to turn. So we, we screen for that. So if it's not humanitarian-based immigration, we'll also refer them out. Um, so if it's case type that we handle, then it really comes down to our capacity. And um, like I said, we probably turn three out of four callers away just because we don't have capacity to do more than that. And despite the fact that we've, we've added attorneys, um, every case type is getting more and more complicated because of the way the administration is um, changing the rules and changing the processes. And so I, I would say on average, every case type is taking 30 to 50% more time now than it did three or four years ago. Wow. Um, and, and, and so even though we've grown our staff, we have, we've grown some in the number of clients we're able to help, but it's not a meteoric rise just because everything is so much more complicated. Yeah. I'm, I, it would be interesting like, how many staff attorneys that you have and on average, what's their uh, case load? Case load. We have seven, three of whom are part-time, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's a full range because it's, it's based on experience as well, and it takes time for a new attorney to build up a caseload. So my two most experienced um, attorneys who've been with us for a number of years probably have um, 40 to 50 open cases going simultaneously. Um, and, wow. and, and, and they may have a hundred or, you know, 80 to a hundred clients because 
the case may be filed, depending on the case type, for like a U visa, the adjudication won't take place for almost 10 years. The backlog is that long. So I have one attorney who's been with us six years. She just got her first U visa approval of a case that she filed. Yeah, that is six years. So, so she has a lot of cases, but there's no activity on them for a, a period of time. So it's, and, a little, it's a little convoluted in terms of how many open cases, but typically they're probably a, a, a good open caseload is in the 30 to 40 range um, at any given time on cases they're working on and preparing to file. But it also depends on the case type, because if you're doing asylum and you're only doing asylum, you may do 20 cases a year. If you're doing DACA, you could do two, 250 a year, you know, so it just depends on the case. And, and mo all of our attorneys, our attorneys aren't, while we have some that have expertise in certain case types, all of them do the full range of cases because we feel like that really, then they're all better equipped to do a full assessment of, of what a client might be eligible for. So they know the nuances of, well, this may actually make you eligible for asylum and you might not have had any idea or you know so by them doing all the case types they're aware of all the possibilities and can better assess what the best solution for the client would be okay well um i'm sure i i think you mentioned u visa a couple of times but mm -hmm. maybe our listeners doesn't know what it is u visa or what's a t visa or what's the violence against women act so okay. if you could give a definition of what's a violence against women act and uh, define the u visa t visa and maybe mm -hmm. tell us a difference between asylum and refugee cases okay that would be helpful okay um i'll start with vala uh Violence Against Women's Act, and and basically that and the U visa laws were were really put in with the encouragement of law enforcement to encourage the immigrant community to cooperate with police. Um, we don't whether you're documented or not. We generally don't want you to be a victim of a crime or somebody taking advantage of your status um, to victimize you. And if they're doing it to you, they're probably doing it to other people. So mm -hmm. the idea behind a lot of these um, case types are really to try to encourage the immigrant population to work with the local police and not be afraid to, to go to the police when there's a problem. So it's a community safety issue. VAWA specifically, Violence Against Women Act, is um, for if somebody marries a, a, a legal permanent resident, which is a green card holder, or a U.S. citizen, mm -hmm. if, then they can the the green card holder or U.S. citizen can petition for that individual if they're undocumented or if they're documented some other way to get a green card. But that green card condition is well, it's conditional on the marriage to mm -hmm. the green card holder or the U.S. citizen. What happens uh, far more than any of us care to acknowledge is that in many cases their status is held over them as a form of control mm -hmm. so the the marriage has to be in good faith they have to have lived together for i believe it's two years mm -hmm. but what often happens is the citizen or lpr won't actually file or won't actually petition for the individual and and so 
that basically keeps them entrapped in the marriage and abuse, whether it's physical or mental, which has a higher standard of proof, um, is, you know, if I, if, if I beat you and you want to go to the police, I can say, well, go ahead. You're undocumented. They're going to send you home. And whether that's true or not, it's, it's a, it's a very controlling mechanism. Um, so VAWA was created basically that if that circumstance happens, um, whether they're holding over the status or not, if they haven't petitioned for them, if they don't have the green card, they can actually separate, they could still file for the status. They've had a legitimate marriage. It was got married in good faith. They lived together for, like I said, I think it's two years. Um, but there's a, abuse. Then the individual can, can still apply for the green card without the conditional status. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what that one is. Um, a U visa is for victims of crime, violent mm-hmm. crime. So uh, again, particularly undocumented are very vulnerable. And this happens in, it, it, could, it could be a random crime or mm-hmm. it could be someone targeted. You know, we've had, we've had clients, um, an undocumented guy who was a restaurant worker and um, the manager or the owner was basically abusing them. They were making them work long hours and saying, if you don't, I'm gonna report you. Mm-hmm. And eventually led to uh, a physical assault. Well, the, the client went to the police and the police have to certify that you cooperated with them. Mm-hmm. And, and then you are able to file for a U visa. And both VAWA and U visas give you initially a work permit. And then after a period of time, which I believe is it's one or three years, I can't remember which, then you can adjust that status to a green card and Mm -hmm. then ultimately to citizenship. Um, So it is, you know, if you've qualified under that, now the timeline for VAWA is just a matter of how fast they adjudicate those. And that doesn't take nearly as long. Um, I don't believe there's a limitation on the number of, of those types of cases. For U visas, the federal government allocates 10,000 new visas a year. And and so that is used so much, there is literally a backlog of about 80,000 new visas. And so it can take eight to 10 years for your turn for there to be a visa available. That's how how big that backlog is. and things could happen in between. People die, people leave the country, people get married. So maybe they have a, you know, things can happen. They may have a different pathway, um, but but that, but that's the reality of it. Um, asylum, oh, a T visa is a trafficking visa. So this is one of the few underutilized visas. Um, like I said, there's 10,000 U visas. There's only 5,000 trafficking visas a year. But to my knowledge, that 5,000 a year has never been used up okay. because it's very hard to prove the trafficking. So it's, you have to be a victim of either labor or sex trafficking. It's not other types of trafficking. Um, and the burden of proof is pretty steep. But that works basically the same way as that you, I believe you get, you initially get um, 
a work permit and then after a period of time you're able to adjust that status to a green card. Um, often the challenge for T visas is if you've been a sex worker in many states they won't clear your record if you've been arrested for solicitation or anything like that. So a felony can be uh, an inhibitor to you know so it's all of these levels of complication on this stuff um, so there's a lot of issues when trafficking that makes it relatively hard to get um, mm -hmm. depending on the situation and you have to prove the trafficking um, so so those are three um, definite victim of crime stories or victim of abuse stories yeah and the burden of proof is always on the victim side yes yeah now on the on the U visas, the the other piece that has to happen is the police have to be willing to certify that you cooperated. I see. In some jurisdictions, particularly like Fairfax County and Arlington, the police are very good about doing that. In other jurisdictions, they're not so kind mm -hmm. um, about certifying that somebody cooperated. Um, you know, and that could be political, it could be an individual situation, but, you know, we've, we, it's clearly easier in some jurisdictions than in others to get the, the police to do the certification. So, um, and then you ask about asylees and refugees. Mm -hmm. So asylees and refugees, by definition, are the same, with one exception. A refugee is displaced from their country, so they're in a second location um, and basically can't safely return to their country. And in the refugee situation, the UN, the United Nations High Commission on Refugees, basically does the initial vetting to say, you meet the criteria. And that criteria is you can't return to your country safely you have been persecuted based on, and I can never remember all of the categories, but it's religion, political party, um, uh, it could be um, sex orientation, se sexual orientation, it, it, but, and that would be at one of the, so, <coughs> excuse me, social groups, mm -hmm. um, but that social group has to be a defined social group. So it, um, in, in the past, Prior to this administration, people coming to the border, if they were victims of gang violence or victims of domestic violence, and particularly in Central America, that was an acceptable category of social group. This administration has said that's no longer qualified as because who is the social group? Mm -hmm. um, but definitely um, LGBTQ, religious persecution, political persecution um, are all, you know. Uh, if if you've um, if you've been confronted by the government because you disagree with mm -hmm. their policies and things like that, so um, those are reasons that you can get certified as a refugee. So a refugee is in a second country waiting to be placed in a permanent country, and the UN does the initial vetting. They match them up to however many. Um, each country is willing to take. And those matchings, mm -hmm. I think, are based on do they have family members in another country or is there a, a relatively large population of a particular group resettled in that country and so forth. And it's also based on the numbers each country is willing to take. Mm -hmm. um, so 
that's a you know and then each country continues to do their own level of vetting on those on those um, refugees an asylee has to meet the same requirements they've left their country they've been persecuted or part of one of these social groups can't return and the, but the difference is they've reached the country they want to settle in i see so back in the day for me back in when when the communist countries were much more prevalent with the soviet union and cuba and china and this was a big part of the cuban migration is if somebody got out of cuba or the, the soviet basketball team would show you know would come to the us to play they were watched very closely because they would defect mm -hmm. um, if they didn't want to stay in russia um, or Cuba or wherever, and they get if they got to the United States, if they could get out and get to somebody and say, I'm seeking asylum, they would still have the burden of proof. But typically, if they were opposed to, you know, if they had been in opposition to the communist regime, that was considered proof. You know, that was a legitimate reason. So the folks coming across the border now who are seeking asylum have that burden of proof as to what level of per persecution was happening why was it happening what did they try to do to escape it um, within their country did they go to the police those kinds of things but to actually claim as asylum they still have to be able to meet those criteria but their claim to asylum is to stay where they are so you know, so the folks who are fleeing Syria and are in a refugee camp in Kenya could get placed in the United States. They're refugees. Somebody crossing the border into the United States or, or flies in on a tourist visa and gets here and says, I'm seeking asylum. That's because they're already here. Um, so that's the differentiation there. We do not deal with initially with refugees because they come, the government has contracts with, I think there's five or six organizations that do, that are, are contracted to do resettlement. And there's very specific things that they're required to do as part of that resettlement. Mm -hmm. um, asylees don't really fall under that bucket. Um, so that's handled a little bit different. So we, we have started doing some asylum cases. Refugees, we wouldn't deal with until. I think it's two or three years in where they can adjust their status. So they go from a temporary to the green card. Yeah, well, that is a really good definition. And thank you for that distinction between Isali and a re refugee, because mm -hmm. that was really educational. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, I know that Lantun Dahua is a Mongolian based nonprofit organization. So every time I speak with our guest speakers, I always want to know how many of their clients are from Mongolia. Like if you have that kind of data. Yeah, we do. We do track what countries and, um, you know, we've been around for 23 years and we have probably had somewhere in the 60 to 70 clients okay. from Mongolia. Okay. Um, it's a fairly small percentage of our, our total base, but mm -hmm. um, I think I think last year we had five. Wow, um, that's good. And yeah, and um, so you know the numbers have gone from you know they're 
I think when I went back and looked at some of the data, it was from zero to eight. It was probably mm -hmm. one year that we had the most, but it, it, you know, probably on average, it's three to five a year. Okay. And does that, does those people have any language barrier or if that um, case comes up, how do you translate and how do you communicate with those people? Yeah, for, for any language, um, we're pretty well equipped in the office to handle Spanish because we have, so, that's obviously the, mm -hmm. the, the most um, second language other than English that we have. Um, we have an amazing core of volunteers um, who speak many languages. So we basically have people that we can call on if we have someone who speaks a specific language. We're we're generally able to find somebody who can translate for us. And sometimes it's written documents, sometimes it's the conversation. What often happens is if somebody speaks a particular language and it's, it's not one of the major languages, mm -hmm. um, they'll bring somebody to interpret for them, whether it's a family member or a friend of some sort. Um, we also have access to some translation services. Um, so we, uh, I, I am not aware of any language that we have not been able to find a solution for. Um, and, you know, whether we, we know somebody directly or we'll know somebody who knows someone, like mm -hmm. we might call you and say, hey, do you know anybody who would know this language? And you might be able to connect. So, you know, we're, we're pretty well connected across a lot of different. Uh, That's great. So it's like basically to do a translation volunteer work for just neighbors. Yes. Those volunteers does need to have like special training, like court interpreters or like any of those no. high level translation. No, basically um, we use translators two ways. We don't do a ton of court work. Um, we do a little bit. Now that we're doing some asylum cases, we're doing a little bit more, but it's still a fairly small percentage. Um, you know, if that were the case, we would make sure we had a, a very professional, skilled interpreter to do that. And sometimes the court provides a translator mm -hmm. as well. Our, our volunteers are, are often interpreting document, documents. So part of, you know, your case, especially if you're asylum, type of case is your birth certificate your um if you if your your proof of persecution like if you had articles or if somebody mm -hmm. wrote a letter those all have to be translated into english for evidence so our our translators do that as well as assist in the interviews with the attorneys and we do some basic training because it's really translation not interpretation Mm -hmm. We don't, we, if, if it's part of the conversation with the attorney, if the attorney's asking a question, the translator has to ask the question exactly as the attorney has asked it and has to give the answer exactly as the client has responded. They can't go, well, I think what she meant is, that's not what, what has to happen. So we do some training with our, our volunteers so that they understand that when they're playing in that role. Um, and, and again, same with any written translations, it has to be verbatim of what was written. Um, it, you know, syntactically <laughs> interpreted, I guess, but it has to be, you know, fundamentally the same. Yeah, and I would assume that those volunteers would have to sign the like, confidentiality agreement. 
Yes, all of our volunteers sign confidentiality agreements, um, as you know, our attorneys obviously do. We, um, when we take a client, we sign a contract with them for the consultation and assure them of the confidentiality. Every volunteer has a confidentiality agreement. We're getting ready to put some um, background checks in on volunteers as well, just for safety for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, we've never had an issue but it's good practice. Um, so we'll be implementing that soon as well. But yeah, confidentiality, you know, we we're very clear with all of our volunteers that when they leave, they don't have, they don't talk about mm -hmm. certainly specifics of any case and, and names and everything else. And so they sign that before we even let them meet with the client. I have a question. Um, yeah. Under what circumstances uh, Just Neighbors would have to be required to report the case to law enforcement? None. Um, we, we actually will advise clients not to file sometimes. If we don't think they have a legitimate chance of winning their case, mm -hmm. We will be very, we, our attorneys will be very frank with the client and say, you know, you really don't have much of a chance of winning your case and here's why. We will file if you insist on us doing it, but here's your risk. And again, it's changed with this administration than maybe in the past. In the past, if, you're, if your case was rejected, you weren't turned over to ICE. Your information didn't go to ICE. Now it is. Now it so, does. Right. So if your case is rejected, they will immediately forward the information to ICE, and then you're subject to deportation. If you're undocumented, depends on what your case is. If you have another form of documentation, it, it isn't necessarily the case. Um, so our attorneys have always been sensitive to that. Um, and this is one of the areas that immigrants really get um, abused because of their vulnerability. If you're undocumented, there's probably an 80% chance that you don't have a pathway. You know, there's what we find in some studies is about 20, 18 to 20% of folks who have come in without inspection have a pathway um, for various reasons. But the other 80% don't. And, and so, what happens is they're so desperate to find a means to legally stay that people promise them things that they can't deliver. So, some are well-intentioned and trying to help and others are just looking to make money off of them. So we have had many cases where clients have paid thousands of dollars to people who said they, they would file things for them. Either they shouldn't have been filed because they really didn't have a chance of winning or they didn't get filed, you know, and somebody just ripped them off. Um, so that notario fraud is, is way more prevalent than we'd like to think. But we work very hard to make sure that the clients are clear on the likelihood and what the risks are of filing. Um, because in some cases, if, you're, if your case is iffy, you need to understand what the implications of filing are. There's a chance mm -hmm. it could get approved and it could go great there's a chance it won't get approved and you could be handed over to ICE and you could be in deportation proceedings before you know it. So it's up to the client. The client makes a decision how to proceed on that, not us. I have one follow-up question, but it's 
related to COVID-19 and the, the stimulus that federal government is handing out. What if undocumented uh, person was paying taxes all along? And they will, do not, I'm sorry. Will they be able to receive that $1,200, I guess? If they do not have a social security number, because some people pay taxes with the TIN, Mm -hmm. If they don't have a social security number, I believe they are not going to be eligible to, to receive it. So it's like if they use their real social security numbers, but let's say they could have had social security number before they become undocumented and they could be using it right now. So in that case, those people would be able to receive that check? Um, that's, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure. It depends on, if if you if you're in an undocumented status, you're not eligible. Period. Mm -hmm. So whether you may have a social security number, but if you're undocumented, you don't. You're not eligible. I see. So basically, I was hoping that maybe the immigration status and the IRS is not syncing together. So I thought um, like just those people it, who paying taxes. That would be honestly, nice. <laughs> What we're hearing, and I don't have confirmation, but I've had I've had two different uh, sources indicate that even if you are a mixed family, where mm -hmm. there's a U.S. citizen and an undocumented person, and or if the if the taxes were filed under the TIN versus the Social Security number, nobody will receive the stimulus. So um, I don't have a hundred percent proof of that, but I've heard that from two solid sources. Um, so it's not looking good. Um, you know, you can be, you know, even a DACA resident, you mm -hmm. know, if somebody has DACA, they can legitimately work yeah. and individually they would be eligible. But if they're filed on their parents' taxes, for example, they might not get it. Unfortunately, our interview is coming to its end. Um, it's been very valuable and uh, amazing information. Um, yeah. Our last question would be, if there's one thing that you would want the listeners to remember from today, what would, what would it be? I, I think first and foremost, if you have not had a screening on your immigration status, if you're undocumented, get screened because there is a chance you have some pathway. Um, and get screened by a legitimate organization. If it's not just neighbors, go to one of the legitimate nonprofits. Um, don't go to a notario or just any random attorney um, and don't pay thousands and thousands of dollars for the services. Um, because you may have a pathway and you're better off getting whatever documentation you're eligible for than remaining undocumented. Um, and and I, I think the biggest problem is people are so vulnerable that um, they're either afraid to seek help or they seek help in places that they shouldn't. And so um, get screened and if you've got a pathway, do what you need to do to get documented. I think in this economic situation that we're in with this, the virus and everything else, folks who are most vulnerable, they're not gonna get the stimulus checks and those kinds of things if you're not documented. Mm -hmm. And um, I see it as a justice issue that we can move people to where they're less dependent on social services and, and, and those kinds of things in these kind of situations if they can be legalized.
and um, I, you know, I wish we had comprehensive immigration reform and could legalize a lot more people. But if you've got a pathway, you need to follow the process and get it done. Um, it's important. Got it. There's some so many uncertainties, and it's true that the undocumented immigrants would be the most vulnerable group to get Absolutely. hit hard by this. Yeah. Uh, situation. So I really appreciate the work that Just Neighbors does. And thank you so much for your time and being here today and giving your information. I hope many people will listen to it and follow your advice and maybe justice will be served. Sounds like a great plan. Um, I appreciate the opportunity and uh, thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you. On today's episode, we had a pleasure speaking with Executive Director of Just Neighbors, a nonprofit that is dedicated to serving and supporting the immigrant community of Virginia. From Lanton Tokyo Podcast, your hosts were Noming and Gesser. Thank you for listening and have a great day.